Hello and welcome to the Athlete Archives. Have you ever seen the movie The Natural? It stars Robert Redford as baseball player Roy Hobbs. The plot of the movie is a comeback story of a guy in his 40s who lost years in the game after being shot by a woman in a hotel room. The movie is fiction, but was actually inspired by the real-life story of Eddie Waitkus. Waitkus was stalked by a psychopathic woman who became completely obsessed with him and set out on a strange path to kill him, culminating in attempted murder in a hotel room in 1949. The woman would end up in a mental institution, while Eddie would fight through physical and mental pain to return to the game. This is the real-life story of Eddie Wakis. The bulk of the players in baseball of the late 1800s and early 1900s were tough men from tough backgrounds. They were coal miners, factory workers, meat packers. Many drank too much. It wasn't a sport for high society. The game at the time was a war on the base paths. Players were routinely spiked, thrown at, and hit with verbal assaults and language that would shock most people. The fans who attended games were also a rough bunch with a tough reputation. Gamblers, rowdy men, Fist fights at the ballpark were commonplace. Team owners wanted to change the clientele they were attracting to the sport and appeal to a wider audience. Getting women to attend games was part of the process. The thinking was women would bring civility and legitimacy to the sport. There was a concerted effort to appeal to women and families. Club owners started by offering special women's days with deeply discounted or even free admission for ladies. And it worked. Baseball also made efforts to improve the image of its athletes. And by the 1940s, the men playing the game were painted as true celebrities and heroes. Especially after World War II, with hundreds of players having served in the war. By the late 1940s, it was common for young girls to form fan clubs of baseball players. The fan clubs would trade poems about their favorite athletes, swap photos, and stories. They would have meetings and attend games together. Sometimes referred to as baseball annies or baseball sadies, large groups of girls would wait outside the ballpark after games to see their favorite player. After Eddie was shot, the Sporting News profiled these young female fans, and not in a kind light. Stan Bumgarner wrote, quote, The modern baseball sadie is much more dangerous, bold, sex-conscious than her prototype of 20 or 30 years ago. Many come from the best of families. They have good educations, dress in the latest fashions, make up conservatively, and can take their place in any gathering. They form fan clubs. Their loyalty sometimes reaches a dangerous stage. They go after their man with a determined recklessness, whether he is single or married. That has forced baseball clubs to take steps for protection of their players. Much of their correspondence is screened for crank notes, Letters from adolescent girls and older women who only have one thing in mind, to meet and have dates. If one of the letters seems worthy of investigation by the police, it is turned over to the authorities. In other cases, they may be forwarded to the parents of the girls who wrote them. Look out, girls. If your letter is too racy, we may forward it to your parents. The Sporting News story angered female fans but one of these so-called baseball sadies was Ruth Ann Steinhagen, 
the woman who would end up shooting Eddie Wakus. Now, before I get to the actual attack, let me rewind a bit and give you a brief background on Eddie Wakus. Eddie was born September 4, 1919 in Cambridge, Massachusetts to Lithuanian immigrants who met each other on the boat to the U.S. Eddie grew up playing baseball in the streets and parks around Cambridge. For years, he played barehanded because finances were tight, but Eddie's father eventually surprised him with a brand new glove. Unfortunately, it was a first baseman's glove and Eddie didn't play first base. It also was for a lefty and Eddie was right-handed. Eddie didn't have the heart to tell his dad, so he took the glove for the wrong hand in the wrong position and taught himself to play left-handed as a first baseman, the very position he would end up playing for 11 years as a professional at the major league level. Eddie was a high school star. He ended with a 600 batting average and consistently on the honor roll. He studied foreign languages, speaking Lithuanian, Polish, German, and English and he graduated in the top 1% of his class. He considered college, but decided to make baseball his career, and he signed with the Warumbo Indians of Lisbon Falls, Maine in 1938. While playing for Warumbo, big league scouts became enamored with Waitkes' excellent defense. Boston sports writer Fred Berry ironically wrote, quote, These big league wise men viewed the left-handed batting and throwing of 19-year-old Waitkes and termed him a natural. This, of course, foreshadowed the name of the movie that would come 50 years later based on Eddie's life. After the 1938 season, the Chicago Cubs beat out the New York Yankees in a bidding war to sign Eddie. The Cubs gave him a $2,500 signing bonus, which is about fifty-four dollars today, and a contract to play for the Moline Plowboys of the 3i League for $300 a month. Eddie quickly progressed up to the Texas League and the Tulsa Oilers, where he would room with Dizzy Dean, who was down from the majors on a rehab assignment. It was in part the good word and scouting report from Dizzy Dean that helped Eddie get his chance in the major leagues. He would make the big league Cubs in 1941. His time with the majors didn't last too long. He only played in 12 games. Uh, He struggled to hit at that level. He would spend the rest of 1941 and 42 in the minors. Then in 1943, just as he appeared ready to make the big league club again, the Army called. Instead of spring training, Eddie went to basic training. Eddie was assigned to the 544th Engineering Boat and Shore Regiment, and on May 2, 1944, as a member of the weapons section of Company D, he left San Francisco aboard a brand new SS-400 submarine, the USS Sea Devil. 22 days later, He left New Guinea and for the next 17 months participated in multiple amphibious assaults in the Pacific as part of Operation Cartwheel against Japan. Eddie saw a lot of action. He fought alongside assault units on the Japanese-occupied island of Morotai. Then in the Solomon Islands, he joined the 37th Infantry. He was then part of an amphibious assault on the island of Luzon. As the 1945 baseball season was coming to a close, Eddie and the 544th were fighting in Wakayama, Japan. I think it's important to note that when his tour was over, Eddie had earned 10 merit awards, including four bronze stars. He won the bronze arrowhead, the American Theater Ribbon, the World War II Victory Medal, the Luzon Campaign Bronze Star, 
the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal, the New Guinea Campaign Bronze Star, the Northern Solomons Campaign Bronze Star, and the Philippine Liberation Ribbon. Once the war was over, Eddie went back to baseball and immediately took over at first base. His first year post-war in 1946, he hit 304 with a 748 OPS in 113 games. Eddie, now known as a war hero and a legitimate baseball star, was young, handsome, and single. Just the kind of player to attract young girls in Chicago who were fascinated by celebrity ball players. He managed, unfortunately, to catch the eye of one of these young girls at Wrigley Field in April of 1947. Ruth Ann Steinhagen would later tell her psychiatrist, quote, I had my first good look at him on April 27, 1947. I used to go to all the ball games to watch him. We used to wait for them to come out of the clubhouse after the game, and all the time I was watching, I was building in my mind the idea of killing him. Ruth added, One thing I'll say for Eddie, he always paid a lot of attention to me. Her doctor asked, When did he pay attention to you? She said, All the time. When we would walk down the street together, he would talk to me. Not out loud, but in a mental sense, not physical. I didn't tell my mother because she would laugh at me. And if I told my father, he would have sent me to a psychiatrist right away. But I did tell my girlfriends. The Steinhagen family lived in Chicago's north side. As the obsession for Wakeus grew, Ruth followed his every move. Eddie was from Boston, so Ruth ate baked beans every day. Eddie wore number 36, so Ruth went and bought all the records she could that were recorded in 1936. Eddie was Lithuanian, so Ruth bought books and taught herself Lithuanian. Ruth kept a photo of Eddie under her pillow. Her mother said that Ruth would spread out all her photos of Eddie on the bedroom floor and stare at them for hours. One day, Ruth told her mother she was going to get a gun and shoot Eddie Wakus and then shoot herself. Her parents convinced her to see a psychiatrist. She went twice and then stopped going. When the Cubs traded Eddie to Philadelphia in December of 1948, Ruth cried for two days and then decided she was moving to Philly. In early May, Ruth told her friend Helen that she wanted to buy a gun. Once she realized that she needed a permit, she started hitting local pawn shops. She eventually bought a 22 rifle and two boxes of ammunition for $21. Helen was there as Ruth wrapped the gun in paper and then called a cab to take them to the Edgewater Beach Hotel where Eddie was staying, and Ruth had already reserved a room. On June 14, Ruth left Wrigley Field early and set off for the hotel. Her friend Helen stayed at the game. Once inside her room, Ruth called room service. She ordered two whiskey sours and a daiquiri and then went to sleep. It was near midnight when her hotel phone rang. It was Eddie Wakus. You see, after the game, when the Cubs arrived at the hotel, a bellhop had told Eddie that there was a message waiting for him. The note at the hotel desk said, quote, Mr. Wakus, it's extremely important that I see you as soon as possible. We're not acquainted, but I have something of importance to speak to you about. I think it would be to your advantage to let me explain it to you. As I'm leaving the hotel the day after tomorrow, I'd appreciate it greatly if you could see me as soon as possible. My name is Ruth Ann Burns, and I'm in room 1297A. I realized that this is a little out of the ordinary, but as I said, it's rather important. Please come soon. I won't take up much of your time. 
Ruth Ann Burns was obviously a lie, but it actually showed a bit of research on Ruth Ann Steinhagen's part. Ruth Ann Burns was a woman who went to school with Eddie. Eddie read the note, and he paced for several minutes. He later said that he felt something just wasn't right. He couldn't put his finger on it. But he eventually called up to the room, and he woke up Ruth. Whatever she said, it was convincing enough for Eddie. He went up to the room, knocked twice on the door. When he entered the room, he sat in a chair. Ruth closed the door and walked over to the closet and said, I have a surprise for you. She pulled out the rifle and shot, hitting Eddie right in the chest. Eddie took the bullet in the right side of the chest, just below the nipple. The bullet pierced the lung and lodged in a muscle near his spine. The path the bullet took was fortunate in the fact that it was only a 22 saved his life. It missed the arteries, but it ripped a hole in his lung, collapsing it. After shooting Eddie, Ruth had planned to kill herself, but she lost her nerve. Fortunately for Eddie, she instead called the hotel operator, who called the doctor. Eddie was moaning, and Ruth stepped out into the hallway to wait. She later said, The doctor and the house detective came, and it was so silly. Nobody came out of their rooms. You would think they would all come out running. I got mad. I kept telling them, I shot Eddie Wakeus. But they didn't know who Eddie Wakeus was. I thought they were just plain dumb if they didn't know who Eddie Wakeus was. After that, the police came, but I was burning because nobody was coming out of those other rooms. Nobody seemed to want me much. I could have walked right out of that place and nobody would have come after me. Eddie spent that night in the hospital fighting for his life. He lost a lot of blood and doctors were not optimistic. Eventually, Eddie stabilized, and in an incredible, remarkable act of ignorance by the police, Captain John Warren brought Eddie's shooter to the hospital and marched her right into his room unannounced, saying he needed a positive ID. Imagine Eddie laying there in the bed, trying to recover from being shot, emergency surgery, loss of blood, and then in comes your shooter. When I read this, I was shocked, but not as shocked as Eddie was. When he saw Ruth, he literally went into shock. His blood pressure dropped to 80 over 40, his pulse jumped to 130, and he started coughing up blood. Again, Eddie was fortunate and would stabilize by the morning. His right lung had collapsed and was filling up with blood. He would undergo two operations to remove fluid from his lung, and another operation to inflate it and remove the bullet. He was in the hospital for a month. Ruth Ann Steinhagen would be indicted by a grand jury of assault with intent to murder. Her attorneys asked for a sanity hearing. The court heard testimony from Dr. Harris, and his diagnosis of schizophrenia surprised no one. Ruth Ann sat there calmly while Judge James McDermott committed her to Kankakee State Hospital. This was not a good place. Kankakee State Hospital sat on 250 acres and housed 5,000 mentally ill patients. According to what I read, mental hospitals in 1950 were really not much different from mental hospitals in the 1890s. Schizophrenics were just mixed in with Alzheimer's and dementia patients, stroke victims, alcoholics going through DTs. Ruth Ann was at Kankakee for almost three years released in 1952. Afterwards, she lived quietly with her parents and then her sister. And I could find 
really no more information beyond that. She was effectively able to live invisibly, it seems. She died 60 years after her release in December of 2012. Her death was not publicly reported until nearly three months after it occurred. The Chicago Tribune learned of it while searching death records in a connection with another story. Ruth Ann Steinhagen was 83 years old. Let's go back to Eddie. After the shooting, Eddie was able to rehabilitate in Florida. He had lost a lot of weight after being shot, and he was able to get himself back into some sort of playing shape. He added some much-needed muscle heading into the spring training of 1950. He would play another six years before being outright released at the age of 36. His physical recovery was one matter, his mental recovery another. Remember, this is 1950, and people just didn't recognize the effects of PTSD. Eddie was a war hero who fought pretty much all over the Pacific, but it seems that being shot in that Edgewater Beach Hotel was what really rocked him. He suffered severe depression, anxiety, and insomnia for years, which led to marital problems and eventually divorce. He started smoking again, and he began drinking more than ever. His drinking became a significant problem and affected his playing. He then turned to amphetamines as a stimulant to offset the effects from the previous night's alcohol. When Philadelphia released him in 1955, his body was not holding up. He was drinking way too much. And unfortunately, Eddie never really saved much money. He was in no financial position to retire. He had to find work. His career experience up to that point as a soldier or a baseball player didn't really give him a lot of options. He ended up taking a job with a trucking firm and was transferred to Buffalo. Eddie didn't like his new career much and he started to hit the bottle hard. His depression worsened and his marriage fell apart. In 1961, he was admitted to the hospital for a nervous breakdown. In the final chapter of Eddie's life, I think it's important to note someone who stepped in and helped him find purpose before his death. That man was Ted Williams. In the 1960s, Ted Williams was running a baseball camp that attracted kids from all around the world. The camp was in the woods of Massachusetts, and Ted offered Eddie a role in the camp. Eddie had been living alone for years, disconnected from baseball, and by all accounts, still struggling heavily with alcoholism, and PTSD. The Ted Williams camp gave him a purpose. The kids loved Eddie, and Eddie really excelled at his new job. According to psychologists, patients with PTSD often end up developing meaningful relationships with children, and this seems to have been the case for Eddie. He was the camp hitting instructor, and he became really close with kids for years. He seemed to have found his calling. In 1971, Eddie fell from the second story while installing some storm windows and broke his hip. He had a hard time at camp that year, and his health started to decline rapidly. He was only 53, but he developed a cough that just wouldn't go away. He limped, he had no energy, and he had breathing problems. He had quit drinking by now, but he still smoked constantly. Finally, on September 16, 1972, at the age of 53, Eddie died from esophageal and lung cancer. It was a shock to everyone. 
Nobody even knew he had cancer. Back to the book and the movie The Natural. Roy Hobbs obviously didn't suffer the same fate as Eddie. The movie probably wouldn't be as good if Roy battled PTSD and died from cancer at the end. Uh, But this is real life, and I think Eddie was a bit of a victim of the era when psychological trauma just was never addressed. Clearly, he struggled with it his whole life. And that's the story of Eddie Wakus, as sad as it may be. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it and maybe learned something along the way. Thank you for your time. Take care.